0: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Banter. We are your hosts, Max Tui and Max Frost. Max, how are you today?
1: Doing very well, Max. Thank you. Thrilled to be on another episode of Banter today.
0: Well, first of all, you will notice that Matt Wine, said our third host is missing. He's on vacation, spending time in the country of America, avoiding the craziness of urban life. A very smart play. So today we have a conversation with Two of AEI's very own, Robert Dornian Rowe. Now, Robert, as many of you probably know, is AEI's president. He's been president for just over a year, and he comes from AEI as former head of our Poverty Studies Program, and used to head up Social Services under Mayor Bloomberg in New York, and also Ian Rowe, who is one of our newest scholars in education. He's CEO of his charter school network in New York, and recently published a Wall Street Journal op-ed that got a lot of attraction on the race issues that we're dealing with today. It is the role of any think tank, especially a think tank like AEI, which is one of the foremost in the entire world, to talk about policy issues, and in this case, some of the most difficult policy issues. As a refresher, George Floyd was murdered on May 25th. In Minneapolis by police officer Derek Chauvin and ever since then there have been numerous Black Lives Matter protests all across America all over the world and it's really reopened a long-standing and difficult and sad national dialogue about race issues but today the focus is really on what exactly should we be doing to help bridge this divide? And that is something we really care about at AI. It's something everyone should care about. And there's nobody in our building that's better positioned to talk about these issues than Ian and Robert.
1: So without further ado, here are Robert Dorr and Ian Rowe.
0: Robert and Ian, thank you so much for coming on to Banter today.
2: Thank you, great to be here.
3: Glad to be here.
0: Ian, I want to ask you about your recent Wall Street Journal op-ed. Can you tell us a little bit about that op-ed and, and, and what you're thinking these days?
2: Well, once again, thank you for having me on and and, and to discuss these really important issues. So for the last 10 years, uh, I've been the CEO of a nonprofit network of single, single-sex public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, 2,000 students, primarily low-income kids, kids of color. Uh, And so I see every day the challenges that our kids face. Um, And it's critical, uh, one of the most important things that we impart to our kids is this idea that they actually have power, that they have individual agency, that their personal decisions and actions actually have a great influence over their personal life outcomes. You know, many of the banter uh, listeners may be familiar with the concept of grit, uh, which is often defined as the relentless perseverance in pursuit of a goal. But one doesn't develop that that dogged self-determination or grit if you don't believe that your efforts matter. And in so many ways, agency is the precursor to grit. And you can't have agency if you feel that in order to be successful, Someone else has to do something first uh, to be responsible, you know, who is more responsible for your outcomes. And in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, it did seem that a dominant narrative was emerging that structural racism is the key factor holding black people down and and more importantly, that white people uh, need to first give up their privilege in order for black people to succeed. And certainly, there's still uh, discrimination uh, based on race. But what I thought was missing from this larger narrative is the topic of Black excellence and this idea of individual agency, and literally the stories of millions of Black people that are succeeding despite the odds. And I sense that uh, folks were hesitant uh, to mention this because somehow, if we say, if we talk about issues related to individual behavior, then that can be construed uh, as blaming the victim for their own challenges. And I I just thought we have to have the moral courage to both talk about the reality of, of barriers based on race or other identity factors, while also recognizing that there are pathways to power, that there are millions of young people who have adopted certain strategies to be successful, even in spite of those barriers. And so hence why I, I wrote the um, article on personal agency, because one of the things I talked about there is the the power of that comes from following what many call uh, the success sequence, which is a series of decisions around education, work, marriage, then children. Uh, when you make those decisions that, in that order, 97% of the people who followed that, have avoided poverty. And that's just one of the pathways that many millions of black and other people have followed. Um, So it just signals that you do have things within your control uh, that you can be successful.
1: Now, Robert, on a similar note, you wrote a recent op-ed in the National Review where you talked about the, not the denying of individual responsibility, but the denial of progress and people don't want to acknowledge the progress this country has made toward racial equality as well as uh, poverty reduction Uh, and you have a quote here where you said our system of government is suited to achieve the goals of civil rights under law and elimination of severe material hardship Uh, can you talk about that a little bit and how you see that the successes of our system aren't being adequately uh, picked up
3: well thanks Max and thanks very much for having me on banter and thanks also for inviting Ian Rowe our one of our newest scholars at AI to be on as well. And I just want to say how happy I am that he's joined AI and that he's part of our community um, as a as a fellow New Yorker. It's very good to have another New Yorker with us, someone who's actually uh, worked on uh, issues facing people who struggle in the United States directly with people in schools in communities. Uh, we don't have a lot of scholars at AI who've actually had that direct hands-on experience. I happen to be one of the others, having run a social service agency. Uh, in New York State and New York City for almost 20 years. So it's good that we have at AI wonderful scholars who think big thoughts and wonderful journalists who write like the wind. And it's also good to have people that have real experience with helping people move up in the United States. And so Ian is a great uh, addition to our team. Uh, And I also want to point out that I I think he's absolutely right about the important ingredients of personal agency and and hope and a, and a, and a, a belief that if you work hard and and, and try hard, you will succeed, that is an essential ingredient to helping people move up. It's not entirely sufficient, and, and I don't think Ian would, would say that it's all you need. There are right. ways in which we can help individuals uh, through government action, through uh, community action, through family action, that that contribute to someone's success that are beyond just their own efforts, and we recognize that. Um and that gets to the question you were asking about the recent piece I wrote for NRO uh, about um, recognizing progress. I think if you, if you fail to see that, that we have made progress in these difficult challenges of uh, civil rights for all and, and poverty reduction, um, then you really don't know what to do next to make even further progress. And you obscure and, and, and um, sort of cloud up a real clear thinking about what we need to do to help people uh, advance even further. And so, you know, America in 1960 and 1955, uh, pre-Civil Rights Revolution, led by Dr. King and many, many others, uh, was a different place than the United States today when it comes to uh, voting rights and economic opportunities for African Americans. It's just a fact, and there are a hundred ways you can describe it. You can see it in our school boards and in our city councils and our state legislatures and in our Congress. And you can see it in uh, uh, corporate CEO offices as well. So progress has been made. That's not to say that we're done, or there isn't more progress to be made, but we have to recognize that the rhetoric of those who would say we're no better than we were in 1955 or 1865 is just not correct factually. And it also makes it harder. To move forward uh, on the things that are really uh, uh, challenges for us, and when it comes to poverty, something I've more focused on in my career, the same thing is happening. We've done a lot of things in government and in in our society, in our cities and towns and states that have made the um, material well-being of people at the very bottom of the economic ladder much different than uh, it was for those who were at the bottom in. In the early 1960s or 1950s, um, material hardship has been significantly relieved through a combination of employment uh, with wages, plus uh, uh, what I call work supports, benefits from government that make wages go further, which are available to millions of Americans who work in low-wage jobs, and helps them significantly uh, with with their material well-being. And um, and a policy that said uh, clearly that that benefits alone will not help people get above, uh, get up to the first ladder or second rung on the ladder economically, but work plus benefits uh, can. And so, therefore, work was essential, which kind of goes back to what Ian's point was, was that there are ways we can help people who struggle, and we should do that. But we also have to recognize that they have a role, too. And in recognizing that, we're actually um, helping them more than a rhetoric that says you're a victim, you're dependent, all of your future is dependent on what white America or corporate America or or government does for you or to you. That eliminates uh, people's individuality and their and their personal sense of worth and dignity, and that's the worst thing we can do to people.
0: So let me just read. To the audience. Two stats you pointed out, Robert, in the NRO piece. One is that in 1960, there were four members of Congress that were African-American. Today, that number is 57. Another you have is compared to 50 years ago, adjusted for inflation, African-American median household incomes have risen by 45%. So, and you list a number of other statistics that show a lot of progress. But Ian, there's still a lot of progress to be made if you look at disparities in household wealth, if you look at high school graduation rates, college graduation rates, as we're having this national dialogue about race, where should we be focusing most of our attention? Is it police brutality, or is that really not the core a core issue that we should be discussing?
2: Well, as it relates to police brutality. Uh, you know everyone saw the video of George Floyd you know this is a heinous murder and that's a situation that uh police brutality should be uh, prosecuted to the full of, full extent of the, you know of the law so there's no there's no uh confusion and I think the top police officers would say that as well there's no confusion there but if we're looking at the overall situation of advancement In our country robert's point is central there's been tremendous progress that's been made and sometimes we get so obsessed with the negative um, narrative we study failure but we don't often study success enough what is it that binds the people together that have been economically successful for uh, folks who started in a lower income bracket uh, and ended up in the um, middle or upper income bracket across race. What are those ingredients? I mean, Raj Chetty, the you know, economist, has done a lot of work on upward mobility, uh, and he has identified that, for example, in many, for black uh, men, one of the factors that drives upward mobility is the presence of fathers within a given community, which is an extraordinary finding. Uh, And so the question is, all right, well, how how does that play to some of the solutions that are being put out there now? So, for example, uh, Aunt Jemima, uh, you know, uh, syrup is no longer going to be sold on the shelves of stores. Okay, Uh, uh, Statues are being toppled. Uh, You know, I, I understand the energy around these things, but. At the end of the day, that's not creating more opportunity for young people to experience a fantastic education. Or it's not necessarily focused on how do we build more young men to think about being uh, strong fathers. And so, for example, in New York City today, if you have the idea to launch a new public charter school, uh, which I've had the you know, honor of leading for the last decade and will continue to do so, um, there's a cap on the number of charters. So if you have a great idea to launch a new school in a low-income community where, for example, in the district where our Bronx Boys School is located, only 2% of boys that start ninth grade four years later graduate from high school ready for college. If you have a great idea to address that issue in the heart of the South Bronx, right now you'd be banned from doing that. So when we when we try to think of solutions, I think I think we're falling into a trap of narrow casting where we think that, you know, banning chokeholds, which may or may not be the right decision, where somehow that is the policy to transform uh, educational opportunity for kids of all races is is a very narrow way of looking at the problem.
3: So, uh, first of all, I, I think on the. The police issue. There is a a, a, a question there, and there is a, a way to look at it that could lead to progress. And and to me, it is about the power of of collective bargaining and unions to protect people that, that behave badly in whether it's in the police force or in schools or in other contexts. And um, that's to me the reform that's needed. We need to find a way to uh, do a better job of protecting all of us, but especially people who are discriminated against and are victims of of racial bigotry um, uh, from the the inappropriate use of force, um, dangerous, inappropriate, deadly use of force by police officers. And part of the problem there is that we've not allowed um, management of police officers uh, to um, quickly move to uh, retrain or discharge uh, police officers who uh, have a record of behaving badly towards citizens. So I, I definitely think there's an issue in that. I don't want to dismiss that. But I also agree with Ian that that's not the biggest issue facing uh, struggling Americans or African Americans uh, who are poor in the United States. I happen to think that, and this goes to your your. References to disparities based on race. I really urge everyone, when they think about those disparities, to, to look at that how they relate to family structure. The fact of the matter is is that households with uh, children in it that are raised by a single parent without the presence of a loving second parent um, for the long haul do less well. Whether you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian, you just do less well, and that I think is contributing as much to the uh, disparities in outcomes uh, as someone's racial uh, background. And so I talk a lot about fathers as well. I started my career working in a program that focused on getting greater participation um, uh, from absent parents in the households of children with single mothers. And I believe in it as being as important as anything else we can do uh, to help children get off to a better start. Um, in, in the United States. So that's an issue. Schools are also an issue. We, we, Ian's right. The inability of uh, parents and leaders to create new alternative ways of educating children in a way that can be more effective than the traditional public school was, 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 was being in the, in the city I came from. I and mean, when I grew up in New York City in the 70s, the public schools were awful. And that's why people left the city. That's why people left public schools. But the creation of the charter school movement and the the growth of these other options has led uh, poor, um, black, Hispanic, and white uh, parents to have have more options and to actually get for their children better outcomes. And we want to encourage that so that schools can do a better job of getting kids off to a good start. And then finally, the one issue that I focus the most on uh, in the long run is employment. It is, uh, we need to constantly be talking about uh, job opportunities, training, uh wage gains, um, upward mobility through employment. That is in the end of the day, that is the key to raising incomes and closing disparities, which had been closing uh up until the, the, the impact of the pandemic and the and the shutdowns. We were making great progress on some of these important statistics. African American child poverty, the gap between African American child poverty and white uh child poverty was closing. Um so Employment really matters a lot and helping people get into work and recognizing that uh, dependency on government uh, is not the the way out of poverty. That will lead you to be kind of the, the sources of benefits that we provide in government assistance programs are not enough to raise people above the poverty line. They need employment as well. And we can't say that enough, both as urging people to get into work, but also urging our leaders to create an economic circumstance where there's just lots of opportunity, where businesses can hire and promote and train to help people move up. So uh, I happen to think that um, in the factors contributing to holding people who struggle in the United States back, family, work, school is, are bigger factors and things we should focus more on than race. Um, and that right now is not the prevailing message or the prevailing talking points in the United States, and I worry that that's going to detract us from the real work that needs to be done to help people who struggle in the United States, and it's going to be harmful to the very families and children we're trying to help.
2: I, I 100% agree with that, and, and just again to reinforce this point of let's study success what, what is it that the population of middle and upper uh, class Black Americans, what, is, what are the strategies that, that they pursued in their life? And there was a study done uh, by AEI last year that part of the, the significant growth uh, in the Black middle class was due to uh, decisions around education, work, marriage, and children. Um, typically, there was a faith commitment, but there also was, at the end of the day, a sense of personal agency that, in addition to those decisions, these uh, individuals uh, felt that they can control their destiny through their own decision-making. And what's interesting is that when you look at studies related to the white working class, a number of the issues that are affecting the the explosion in that community has to do with also decisions around education, work, marriage, and children in terms of the explosion in non-marital births. And so what we're starting to discover is that many of the issues that are facing uh, low-income black Americans are actually very similar to the issues facing low-income white Americans. And it is much more around the things that Robert's talking about, particularly as it relates to family structure. So, again, from a policy perspective, again, police, where police brutality is happening, it needs to be um, uh, addressed. Uh, where there are appropriate police reforms. But if we're truly interested in liberating millions of people of all races, we should look at uh, the reasons why people of uh, black community have been successful, why people in the white community have not been successful, and understand that there are factors beyond race that are really driving uh, most of these outcomes. And those factors uh, significantly have to do with uh, family structure Uh, the the timing of family formation as central. We just have to have the moral courage to have that discussion along with talking about uh,
1: barriers around race and other factors. So from a a policy perspective, where do the levers to make some positive changes here lie? I mean, when you talk about education, um, of course, criminal justice reform, family structure issues, are these, is this, at the federal level that we should be considering policies, state, local? Uh, where does it come down? Or is it? Is a lot of this not in the hands of the government?
3: Well, that's a very good question, Max, because uh, both Ian and I have stressed uh, family structure and decisions and thinking about uh, the uh, way to, to raise a family. And um, that's hard to influence with a, a government program. Um, and uh, But that doesn't mean – we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't uh, e- emphasize it. And that leaders in churches and cities and towns and in the federal government should should be willing to, 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 to talk about it and, and to lead on it. And I think there's been some of that. I think some scholars at AI, at Brad Wilcox is a tremendous leader in this area, um, and just constantly point out the data. And I've noticed that It's not just a, you know, left, a a right thing. You know, people who are right wing think this this is just, that's just false. Belle Sawhill, uh, Sarah McClanahan at Princeton, very prominent leaders who are more thought of as sort of um, left or democratic strongly agree with us that family matters and they're willing to talk about it. And I think it's had um, some impact on the um, uh, decisions of, of single parents to have children. So, so they're, they're, Fewer people are having children, period, uh, but especially fewer people are having children who are not married. Now, the percentage of all births are still uh, higher than they should be in terms of the number of kids who are born into single-parent families. It's about 40%, um, and it's rising most among whites. And more children are born into white single-parent families every year than are born into black single-parent families. So this is a problem of all um Exactly, of all types of families. But the, but but agree again. I think it's very hard to to change a government policy to affect this. There, some people have done some work saying that there are built-in um, incentives or uh, that allow uh, that sort of penalize married families when it comes to the receipt of public assistance. We've done some work on that, uh, and some policies have been changed to protect married families from losing benefits um, when they become married and, and combine incomes. Uh, but my view is, a, is while we can tinker with that and, and it will have some effects, the real issue is uh, just leadership and talking about it. And I would, last thing I would just point out is, you know, Ian has is, is, is always been reminding me that faith plays a role here too. Since I've known him, he's always said, don't forget faith. And he's right about that. Um, I get that. But I think our faith, um, leaders uh, in my own church and the Catholic church could do more on this as well um, in talking about the importance of two active and involved parents there for the long haul in the United States that mostly happens in marriage in helping to raise children and get them off to a good start. Um, And uh, the alternative is a kind of uh, – If you don't rely on families, then you immediately turn to the government, and then the government becomes sort of – everybody becomes a ward of the state from cradle to grave. And that's not the image of the United States or of America that um, has made us uh, what we are. And so uh, we really do have to focus on families and lead.
2: And I I would just underscore on the faith point, I mean, I I really – uh, underscore this idea that the faith community uh, leaders in the faith community, you know, have the moral authority uh, to say things that, you know, might be able to cut through in an otherwise polarized uh, environment. So for example, uh, you know, again, we're talking about uh, black lives matter, but over the last month, literally, I mean, the the, the explosion in violence and murder in Chicago, Atlanta, New York, many of which are children, black children being killed. And there isn't really the same, not really, there isn't anywhere near the same outcry. And you, know, you, you wonder where is the faith community to, to say, look, all of these lives matter. And let's understand what the factors are that are driving this explosion so i you know I, I would i would continue to cultivate that that uh faith leaders have a very very important role to to play and it it's striking their absence right now i think we're suffering uh, because of the absence of those voices now
3: yeah. i do want to say there is a, this raises a, po- a political point uh, um and that i i made in my article that i i was a little subtle but i i want to make it again here uh ian's right this you know the issue concerning police and and low-income neighborhoods and cities is, is more complicated than just the police are bad and innocent people are being harmed and, and uh, brutalized by police. Uh, police actually are a source of great uh, safety and protection for the vast majority of people who suffer from high crime rates and uh, shootings. And so the African-American community is, is sort of torn between a desire to reform police so that they are treated appropriately, but also a desire to make sure police are there to protect their their homes and businesses and, and children, and um, and, and I my sense of them is is that or their political uh, will and and choices is and it's very ironic to me is that the African American the vast uh, array of African American voters are much more moderate on these issues than um, the leaders of the far left movement want to say they are, and this was nowhere more apparent than during the Democratic primary for president this past year. It was remarkable to me the way in which the sort of far left radical, mostly uh, sort of uh, often white, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren group felt, well, we're of course you know gonna get the support of, of African-Americans across the South because we stand for them more than anyone else. And then when the election actually happened, uh, Vice President Biden, Biden destroyed them among African American communities across the South, and even my old boss Mike Bloomberg beat them in African American communities across the South, and that, in my opinion, showed great—I um, well, happen to think—wisdom in rejecting this sort of more radical approach um, and uh, and and really putting their 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 faith and choice in leaders who have been for strong policing and have recognized that there are more issues that are that are holding people back than just race and um and i was you know i was walking down the streets here in washington right after the the big primaries where biden won so so dramatically and won because of the overwhelming support he got from african-american voters and it just occurred to me that they they were they were saving the Democratic Party. They were in, – and in some respects, should Biden become the next president, they were helping to, to to save the country from a turn that I think would be much more dramatic and unnecessary. So how do you go from this being a left-right issue, Ian,
0: to this being a unifying and – not an issue, project? Because as you're pointing out, there are so many different complicated components to – this this dialogue and this movement.
2: Well, you know, I come from the, the world of public charter schools, which for a long time, uh, uh, left and right, uh, essentially agreed to disagree uh, in every other area, but came to the conclusion that education matters and educational choice in the hands of primarily low-income parents should supersede whatever partisan. Uh, um, disagreements we may have in other areas. And so we saw tremendous left and right cooperation to expand charter school choice across the country. Because I think there was just a basic agreement that one of the building blocks of success for low-income kids to to drive upward mobility was having high-quality educational options. I would love to believe that we could take that same approach to study success from a broader uh, level what what are the factors that drive uh, upward mobility? what contributes to success and there has been a lot of uh, done by both left and right by the way, Brookings Institution was the first uh, years ago to to name this thing called the success sequence that for those people who have been uh, successful across race, uh, and by successful I mean entry into the middle class, avoidance of poverty, and so that's what I'm primarily focusing on. And so I think the more that we actually look at the data, and and understand that the the, the racial wealth gap isn't uh, as big, or in potentially in some cases disappears when you have uh, uh, black families who are in you know married stable parent you household and you got white families who are you know single parenthood you know the the racial wealth gap doesn't exist uh in the same way and so if we start to realize that these issues are across race they're across left right that there are other factors i think that that's you know that's how i uh think about it because i've seen it work in the charter school arena that we can get beyond the traditional categories because we agree on the ingredients for success. And if we agree on the ingredients for success to the larger topic of upward mobility, uh, then maybe we can have some constructive dialogue on how to intervene. I
3: I also would say that it's very important, and this is a great question, by the way, uh, Max, to um, not be be drawn to the loudest voices and the most strident voices on both sides. Um, You know, our media and our uh, social media the way in which we communicate we we, we tend to um, celebrate and and um, and exaggerate the the most strident um, uh, voices on both the right and the left and so they are then perceived as representing you know large um, groups of, of Americans when in fact they don't when in fact the vast majority of Americans are neither right nor left uh, and they they really want to just solve problems, and they really do have, you know, um, attitudes not too dissimilar from Ian and, and myself about no one doesn't recognize that family matters, no one doesn't recognize that work is important, no one you know in this group of this broad middle doesn't understand that personal agency does play a role, and that. And no one really in this broad middle doesn't recognize that we have made progress, that we're a different country, and that we, we, and we've proven we can get better and we can get still better. But in our political in our dialogue, um, you know the loudest, most strident voices on the far right and on the far left sort of take over. And the way to get to progress is for those of us who are um, more moderate and more reasonable, and see the full picture in an appropriate way to not let them have a kind of heckler's veto on the rest of us. We've got to step up and say, now wait a minute. Um, as Ian says, tearing down statues is not going to help struggling um, minority children in the South Bronx or in bedford and in Brooklyn. It's just it's a it, it, they're not it's not helpful at all, really. And um, we ought to really get focused on what we need to do to help. Uh, people move up. And the vast majority of American people want us to do that and to not be given in to this stridency on both sides. And um, that's what AI is about. Uh, and that's what uh, many, many other organizations in the United States are about. And I should just say, I have confidence that we'll get through this and that we will we'll get back to uh, making uh, steady progress in helping Americans who struggle with racial bigotry and economic disadvantage and educational shortcomings in communities. And um, uh, uh, then we'll get back to the real work of helping people um, uh, flourish in the United States. But in order to do that, we've got to, we've got to not allow the loudest voices to dominate the
1: entire discussion. Well, Robert, Ian, This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us on banter today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of banter. We hope that you got as much out of it as we did. We are thrilled to have this conversation and hopefully it adds in a constructive way to the debate the country is having about all these issues right now.
0: So as you recall from the conversation, we mentioned a couple pieces, including Ian Rose's piece in the Wall Street Journal he published at the end of June, and then also Robert Doerr's more recent piece in National Review Online regarding the progress we've made on a lot of these issues. And I really recommend that one. And nobody should read the piece thinking our work is done or that we should deprioritize this whole portfolio of of race-related issues. But it does show that significant progress has been made, not pie in the sky progress. I'm talking when you look at almost every single aspect of American life, from education to wealth to representation in our government, that we are dramatically, dramatically better now than we were in say 1960. And maybe that's not the highest bar to hold ourselves to, but to not acknowledge progress is also not helpful
1: our job as a think tank is to keep working at these issues and coming up with solutions that can help lift up all Americans so that being said next week we have another episode of Banter coming at you it is an extremely special episode as you'll find out then so stay tuned and we'll be back with our third host Matt Weinstein next week for again a very special Banter episode stay tuned <laughs>